guys, I'm Ray Belli, and this is Words for Granted, a podcast that looks at how words change over time. If you value this show as a free educational resource and you'd like to show your support, you can do so via Patreon. Patreon is a crowdfunding service that allows independent creators to get their work out into the world. If you donate as little as $1 a month, that's less than what you'd pay for a bad cup of coffee, you'll gain access to members-only episodes. Not only that, but you also will get to walk away with the satisfaction of knowing that you are directly helping to sustain the output of Words for Granted. Based on the podcast's current monthly listenership, if everyone contributed just a dollar a month, that would give me enough support to literally just focus on producing this show. And that would be awesome. So, if you're so inclined, go to patreon.com slash wordsforgranted to find out more. You can also find a link to my Patreon on my website, wordsforgranted.com. All right, enough of me sounding like a car commercial. Let's get on to the show. Today's episode was supposed to be the finale of the politically-themed miniseries that I've been putting together, but it's not. I am a filthy liar, I know. But if you recall, last time I said that the miniseries finale was going to be something special, and that something special isn't quite ready yet. That something special is a guest speaker. I won't give away who it is or what the episode will be about, but I will say that the delay is totally my fault for not getting my own material together in time. So instead of having you guys wait another week or two for that to be finished, I put together this bonus episode about ethnic suffixes, which I think will hold you over until then. Before we get into our discussion, I want to tell you how I arrived upon this topic. A couple of weeks ago, my friend Dan asked me via text message about the pronunciation of the word Nabataean. Now, if you don't know what Nabataean means, that's okay. Neither did I. When he asked me, I had to Google it, and I learned that the Nabataeans were an Arab people who inhabited the Near East about 2,000 years ago. Nabataean is spelled N-A-B-A-T-E-A-N. And because of this E-A-N ending, my friend was unsure if he should pronounce it Nabateen, as you might expect given the usual pronunciation of the E-A vowel combination, or Nabatean. Like I said, I'd never heard of the word before, so I couldn't say for sure, but my natural instinct told me that Nabatean was correct simply because it sounded better. Not a very good reason, but Nabateen just doesn't sound like the way you'd pronounce an ethnicity or nationality in English. But why? It didn't take me long to realize that Nabatean sounded more correct because the suffix ian is actually one of the main ways that we indicate ethnicity or nationality in English. Colombian, Albanian, Scandinavian, Romanian, etc., etc., of course, this is something that every English speaker intuitively knows, but it's not something that we necessarily ever think about. Nabataean is not the only ethnicity that contains a potential discrepancy between its spelling and pronunciation. Korean, for example, is spelled similarly, K-O-R-E-A-N. But unlike Nabataean, 
Korean is an ethnicity and nationality that we hear and read about all the time in the 21st century, so this sort of confusion never arises. We just know that it's not pronounced Korean. Naturally, I googled the etymology of the Ian ethnic suffix, and that led me to Google the etymology of ethnic suffixes in general. There are actually quite a few different categories of ethnic suffixes in English, and today's episode is going to cover what I consider to be the main four. The first main suffix category comprises an-derived ethnicities, such as German or Mexican. You wouldn't say German or Mexican in the flow of natural speech, but I think you take my meaning. Its subcategory includes Ian-derived ethnicities, spelled either I-A-N or E-A-N, such as Colombian or Chilean, respectively. Note that the pronunciation of the Ian suffix when spelled I-A-N sometimes varies. When in the flow of speech, we don't say Italian or Russian, but Italian and Russian. The second major suffix category comprises ish-derived ethnicities, such as English and Spanish. Its minor subcategory includes ch-derived ethnicities, such as French and Dutch. The ch suffix is really just the ish suffix in disguise. If you add ish after certain consonant sounds and say it three times fast, it starts to morph into a ch sound. The third major suffix category comprises ease-derived ethnicities, such as Chinese and Japanese, and the fourth comprises e-derived ethnicities, such as Pakistani and Iraqi. There are even more ethnic suffixes in English, such as ik, as in Greenlandic, er, as in New Zealander, and o, as in Filipino, And there may be even more that I missed over the course of my research, but these are minority categories. So instead of going into them here, I may cover them in a bonus episode eventually for Patreon subscribers. Before we explore the etymologies of each of the main ethnic suffix categories, I want you to know about two important terms used by etymologists who specialize in this area. The first term is ethnonym. It derives from the Greek words ethnos, meaning nation, and onoma, meaning name. So ethnonym literally means name of a nation, though in modern English, an ethnonym is the name applied to an ethnic group. Ethnos, of course, is also the root of the word ethnicity, which in spite of its etymology is different from nationality. Ethnicity defines a person according to things such as race, religion, culture, and genealogical ancestry, while nationality defines a person according to the country that he or she lives in. In pre-modern times, ethnicity and nationality usually were the same thing, but today we live in a globalized world where a person of any ethnicity can hypothetically live in any nation. This distinction is important to our discussion because our next term, demonym, is used to identify the inhabitants of a particular place irrespective of ethnicity. It comes from the Greek root words demos, meaning people, and onoma, which again means name. Demonyms can also describe smaller levels of socio-cultural and political organization, such as cities or states. Someone from London is called a Londoner, 
and someone from Florida is called a Floridian. Again, the terms Londoner and Floridian just identify a person's place of residence, not their ethnicity. However, when we use a demonym to indicate what country we live in, that demonym is usually the same as that country's ethnonym. This sounds a little confusing, so let's look at a concrete example. Let's use the term Indian as our model. Indian can refer to someone of Indian ethnic descent or to the nationality of anyone living in India, even if they are not ethnically Indian. Whether the term Indian qualifies as an ethnonym or a demonym simply depends on the context in which it's being used. Over the course of this episode, I will be referring to most of the terms that we'll be discussing and their suffixes as ethnonyms, but please note that for the most part, they could just as well have been called demonyms. I chose to stick with ethnonym because it's the more familiar-sounding term, and even though I don't necessarily do this podcast to be rich and famous, I need to lure listeners in somehow, and demonymic suffixes is a far less alluring episode title than ethnic suffixes. With that said, let's move on to a discussion of the actual suffixes themselves. Like I said earlier, the family of an and ian derived suffixes makes up the largest category of ethnic suffixes in English. They all derive from the Latin adjectival suffix anus, which meant of or belonging to. For instance, Romanus was Latin for someone belonging to Rome, aka a Roman, and Christianus was Latin for someone belonging to Christ, aka a Christian. Christian isn't an ethnicity, but it illustrates my point, and another point as well. The anus suffix was not limited to ethnicities, but also was used to turn ordinary nouns into adjectives. The Latin word for mountain was mons, so the word for mountainous was montanus. The Latin word for village was pagus, so the word for village-like or rustic was paganus. Interestingly, paganus gave us the modern word pagan, but the evolution of that is a story for another time. Now, Note that Roman, the modern English descendant of the Latin Romanus, has an an suffix, while Christian, the modern English descendant of the Latin Christianus, has an ian suffix, spelled I-A-N. This is because the spelling of the root word that precedes the suffix in this category of ethnonyms usually determines which of the an or ian endings gets used. If the root word ends in an E or EA, it usually takes the EAN suffix. If the root word ends in I, IA, or a consonant, it usually takes the IAN suffix, and if it ends in an A, it usually takes the AN suffix. However, I say usually because there are many exceptions to these basic rules. We are talking about English here, after all. For example, the ethnonym for Germany is German, while Germany itself ends with a long E sound. Even though this E sound is written with the letter Y, 
that Y is phonetically interchangeable with the letter I, so in theory, the suffix with the highest candidacy here should be Ian, spelled I-A-N, which would yield the word Germanian. This is the formula used by Italian. Its root word, Italy, ends in a Y that is functionally identical to the Y in Germany. But, as we all know, Germany's ethnonym is German. Why is this? The Latin name for the region occupied by the ancient Germanic tribes was Germania, so the Latin word for German was Germanus. By the time Germanus had passed into English in the 16th century, it was anglicized as German, but here's the twist. The word German is about 300 years older than the country Germany itself. Germany was not unified as a nation-state until 1871. Before the unification of Germany, the word German was used to refer to people of a common Germanic descent with a shared cultural inheritance and language. Even if Germania is a Latin word, its ia suffix shouldn't sound unfamiliar to us. In fact, we can find it in place names all over the globe, not only as a suffix for countries, but also as a suffix for towns, cities, and even continents. Disparate places such as India, Bolivia, Australia, Asia, Algeria, and Philadelphia, to name just a few, all share this cognate ia ending. It comes from the Latin suffix ia, which was a way of grammatically rendering place names in Latin. The place of the Franchi people was called Franquia, and the place of the Hispani people was called Hispania. Today, Franquia and Hispania are called France and Spain, respectively. Note that the modern English names for these countries have no remnant of their earlier Latin suffixes. That's because the Latin-derived words for these place names entered English during the Early Middle English period, and during the Early Middle English period, and, for that matter, the entire Middle English period, the pronunciation of English was undergoing vast and unpredictable changes, so the ia ending in many of these Latinate place names eroded and gave way to more anglicized pronunciations. As it turns out, most of the place names that have the Latinate suffix ia entered English during the modern English period. This is a reflection of Western colonization of the rest of the world. As European explorers colonized places in the New World to the East and in Africa, it became a trend to use Latinate suffixation as a way of rendering the names of new territories. Of course, there are exceptions, but this is the general rule. The next ethnonymic suffix I want to talk about is ish. Unlike ian and an, the ish suffix has Germanic roots. For those of you who may not know, Germanic does not mean the German language as we know it today. It refers to a much larger genetically related language family that includes modern German, Dutch, Norwegian, Danish, Swedish, and, lo and behold, English, all of which ultimately derive from a shared mother tongue known as Proto-Germanic. This Proto-Germanic language predates the introduction of the alphabet to the Germanic peoples, so it was never written down. However, by observing the systematic similarities and differences among the vocabularies inherited by its daughter languages, 
Historical linguists far more brilliant than I have been able to reconstruct hypothetical root words in this mother tongue. The English suffix ish, the German and Dutch ish, and the Danish, Norwegian, and Swedish isk all derive from a common Proto-Germanic ancestor that most likely was pronounced iskaz. All of these suffixes mean of or belonging to. Like the Latin suffix anus, iskaz was a way of turning nouns into corresponding adjectives, and this still remains true for the derivatives of this suffix in the modern Germanic languages. In all of the other Germanic languages aside from English, ish is by far the predominant ethnonymic suffix. Because of its Germanic roots, it's unsurprising that ish-derived ethnonyms are most commonly applied to European countries that are of a relatively close proximity to historically Germanic territory. If you're wondering why the ethnonym for Germany itself doesn't use the ish suffix, well, we just discussed that a few minutes ago. As some of you may have already suspected, the ethnonymic suffix ish is cognate with the more colloquial usage of the word ish, as in bluish or 630-ish. It's interesting to note that in this colloquial usage of the suffix, its implication is somewhat or approximately. If something is bluish, it's kind of blue. And if you plan to arrive at 6.30-ish, you're probably not getting there until 6.45. This, of course, is semantically quite different from its usage in the ethnonymic context. If someone is Danish, they're not kind of from Denmark. They are from Denmark. According to the written record, the colloquial usage of ish, meaning somewhat or approximately, was first applied to time in the early 20th century and nowadays can be applied to almost anything at all. English has another suffix that's cognate with the Germanic ish, and that's esk. Esk means in the style of or resembling. Based on both its pronunciation and its meaning, it's not hard to see how it ultimately comes from the same Germanic root word as ish. But hold on a second. Let's look at the etymological inheritance here. English inherited esk from the French suffix of the same pronunciation and spelling. French inherited esk from the Italian suffix esco, and Italian inherited esco from the Latin suffix iscus. Latin, of course, is not a Germanic language, so how is esk connected to the Germanic-derived ish? Well, iscus was not a native Latin suffix. It began appearing in late vulgar Latin, that is, the style of Latin that was colloquially spoken out on the streets. It likely came into Latin via the Lombardic language. As some of you may know, Lombardy is a region in northern Italy. Today, its inhabitants speak Italian, but historically, the Lombards were originally a Germanic tribe whose language and culture were Germanic. The next ethnonymic suffix I want to discuss is ease. At first glance, you might think that this suffix is reserved for East Asian ethnicities, such as Chinese, Japanese, Taiwanese, etc., but this suffix is actually found all over the world. Someone from the Democratic Republic of Congo is Congolese, someone from Guyana is Guyanese, and someone from Portugal is Portuguese. 
Note that none of these countries are Asian, and each of them is located on a different continent. Before we discuss the seemingly sporadic geographical distribution of this suffix, let's talk about its etymological origins. Like an, ian, and esk, es ultimately comes from Latin. Its root is ensis, a Latin suffix meaning belonging to or originating from. As Latin broke off into the Romance languages, ensis passed into Italian as ese, which then passed into English as ease. Historically, Italian has not had a significant impact on English, so how did this large-scale borrowing of this Italian suffix take place? If you think back to your middle school history class, you probably will recall that Marco Polo is credited as the first European to travel to East Asia, and furthermore, that Marco Polo was Italian. When writing about his travels, he naturally used an Italian suffix to describe the various peoples living in East Asia that he encountered, and this manner of suffixation eventually permeated English. It's worth noting that the ethnonym Chinish, which uses the Germanic ish construction to denote the people of China, was predominant in English until the 15th century, approximately 100 years after Marco Polo's voyages. However, it would be historically inaccurate to give Marco Polo credit for all of the ease-derived ethnonyms in East Asia. For instance, Taiwanese, which I cited as an example of this very formula, is a term that didn't come into usage until the 20th century. However, the Italian-derived suffixation introduced by Marco Polo in some way standardized the way we form ethnonyms in the Far East, so we can give him linguistic credit in that sense. Far Eastern ethnonyms that don't follow this formulation, such as Korean or Singaporean, break this rule rather than follow it. Now, some of you may be wondering, how do we account for ease-derived ethnicities that are from other parts of the world than East Asia? Again, the story of each particular ethnonym is a little different, but in general, when applied to the ethnonyms of non-Asian countries, the ease suffix reflects a history of colonization by Romance-language-speaking people, usually French. For example, Lebanon was historically a French colony, and the French word for Lebanese is Libane, and it's from Libane that we get the anglicized term Lebanese. You might call this particular anglicization an Italo-anglicization because of the Italian origins of the English ease. The one particularly strange ease-derived ethnonym is Portuguese. Portugal is not a country in Asia, nor was it colonized by a Romance-language-speaking people. It actually was a major colonizing force during the Age of Discovery. So, why does its ethnonym use the ease suffix? In the resources that I've used to research this episode, the answer to this question is not clearly laid out, but based on a little extra historical linguistic detective work, I think I have a working hypothesis. In Latin, the ensis suffix seems to have been used for the inhabitants of cities, towns, or islands, as opposed to the inhabitants of larger territories such as countries or nation-states. Ensis, therefore, was more of a demonymic suffix than a proper ethnonymic suffix. For instance, someone from the ancient British city of Eboracum was called an 
Eborokensis, and someone from the ancient Turkish city of Nicomedia was called a Nicomedensis. It follows that someone from Portugal was called Portugalensis. But isn't Portugal a country? Well, yes, but it wasn't always a country. During the Roman Empire, the geographical territory of modern-day Portugal was a part of Hispania, a geographical area that today corresponds to both Portugal and Spain. The place name Portugal did not emerge until the late Latin period, and it wasn't until the early Middle Ages that Portugal emerged as a proper nation-state. However, by that time, people from the region of Portugal had already acquired the Latin demonym Portugalensis. The evolution of Latin into the Romance languages changed this ensis suffix into ese in Italian, es in Spanish and Portuguese, and e in French. It's from this cross-lingual Romance modification of the word that English inherited the term Portuguese. A unique grammatical characteristic of ease-derived ethnonyms is that their noun forms are uncountable. In other words, their singular, plural, and collective forms are all the same. For example, when referring to one person from China, you would say Chinese. When referring to two or more people from China, you would say two Chinese or 2,000 Chinese. When referring to the people of China overall, you would say the Chinese. So, regardless of the numerical case, the form of the word Chinese never changes. This grammatical quirk may be why it sounds a little unnatural to use ease-derived ethnonyms as nouns. I can only speak for myself, but referring to a person as a Japanese or a Chinese feels a little less natural than to refer to someone as an Italian or an Egyptian. The last predominant ethnonymic suffix I want to look at is e, as in Pakistani or Bengali. Because you're listening to this as opposed to reading this, remember that the e we're discussing is actually spelled with the letter i. Most of the time, e-derived ethnonyms come from countries where the predominant language is Arabic. E is an Arabic suffix that, like the Latinate and Germanic suffixes we've previously looked at, means of or belonging to, and traditionally was applied to people from a place. Because of the close relationship between Arabic and Islam, it's worth noting that most countries with E-derived ethnonyms are Muslim-majority. As usual, there are exceptions. For instance, Israel does not speak Arabic as a predominant language, nor is it a Muslim-majority state, yet someone from Israel is called an Israeli. You might think that this is a matter of geo-ethnonymic conformity since Israel is located in the Middle East, but that's actually not the case. The E in Israeli is actually built upon the Hebrew suffix E, which means of or belonging to, and is applied to people from a particular place. So is it a coincidence that this suffix is the same in both Arabic and Hebrew? Not at all. Both languages are part of the Semitic language family, which is to say that A, both languages derive from a common linguistic ancestor, and B, both the Arabic and Hebrew E suffixes are cognate. 
I should note that in everyday usage, the term Semitic usually has a Jewish implication, but in the realm of linguistics, it refers to one of the major language families in the world, comprising languages such as Arabic, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Maltese, among others. Okay, hopefully you were able to keep track of all of that. I had a lot of fun talking about this topic, so I hope you had fun too. Now, time for my customary spiel. Don't forget to follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Words for Granted, and I'm on Facebook as Words for Granted. If you want to reach me directly, my email is wordsforgranted at gmail.com. If you love the podcast, please spread the word and leave a review on iTunes. Those iTunes reviews are the number one way of getting more people on board with the show. All right. See you next time here with a special guest at Words for Granted. Thank you.